I'm Jim Frawley, and this is Bellwether. Hello and welcome to this episode of Bellwether Hub. Happy Wednesday. Thank you for tuning in. We have a great episode for you this week. A lot of times when you look back on some of the podcasts that I've done, we always bring in or we like to bring in a lot of people who have good expertise in particular areas around coaching aspects. So people can coach themselves and work through a lot of things. And we've talked a lot about wellness and we've talked a lot about uh, development and we've talked about things that you can change. And uh, my guest today is a person that I've met with and I've known for a long time, uh, also a coach. And I'm going to have him introduce himself in a second. But one of the he asked me a question one time that stopped me in my tracks and really got me thinking for the better part of a day. Uh, and beyond, right? I still continue to think about it. And I really wanted to bring him in today to talk about belief systems and how our histories and, and our experiences can change who we are as individuals, because he's got some pretty pretty impressive stories as well. Uh, he's a lot of fun to listen to. He's a great person to meet in person. Uh, I'd like to welcome everybody to Alan Goldstein. Alan, welcome to, welcome to Bellwether Hub. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome to all of you listening. Tell us a little bit about you. What do you do? Where do you come from? All that good stuff. Get us started. Born and raised in the Bronx, working class family, public schools, the public school system in the Bronx, Stuyvesant High School, City College, University of Pennsylvania Dental School, and a year in Vietnam in the Army. Came back seriously radicalized. And uh, I was pretty committed then. This is 1969, 1970s. So if you can put yourself back in that historical period, I came back and I was absolutely convinced that I was going to change the world. Ha. Huh. <laughs> we could all change the world, Alec, can't we? Ha. Huh. Anyway, now it's uh, almost 50 years later. I just went to my 50-year um, reunion from dental school, and I looked around and I said, who are all these old farts? Of course, it couldn't be me because... I can't be an old fart. No, of course not. I can't describe myself that way. <laughs> and I started learning about coaching uh, 25 years ago. Uh, I came back from a course, and uh, the guy who taught it said, unless you have staff meetings to a prescribed um, plan, you can't run a business. So that made some sense to me, but I didn't know shit about how to run staff meetings. I mean, yeah, yeah, I could count the cotton rolls. I can, you know, count the napkins and going. But that that didn't seem significant. So I got connected with James Flaherty, a guy on the West Coast, who wrote a book, a well-received book. It's called Coaching, Evoking Excellence in Others. And that really sat with me. So I took some courses with James, signed up, and went for a one-year program. Uh, and came back and hung up, you know, my coaching shingle while I was still practicing dentistry. And uh, a few years ago, I left dentistry and became a full-time coach. Now, what I like about you is that 
and I've worked with clients in the medical industry and the legal industry and the and a lot of these different industries where they have these practices. And they're good lawyers or they're good dentists or they're good doctors, but they're not necessarily good business people. And you thought about it in terms of business and you recognized 25 years ago the value of coaching in a small business, in any kind of business, right? When you're talking about staff meetings and going to learn about how to coach individuals, how much did coaching help your particular business in terms of what you brought to the office? Well, if I broaden the, the word coaching and I include evoking excellence for everybody on my staff, the impact was enormous. We grew, you know, 10, 15% every year in dentistry, and that's a pretty big number. And our practice was well known. Uh, got referrals from all over the country and internationally. Which is amazing because nobody likes dentists. Well, that's a myth. <laughs> <laughs> and the first, the first time my, a young patient came in to see me, or well, the second time, the first time I saw her, the second time she came in and sat on my lap, and she called me Uncle Alan. Well, I melted. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I that's just like outrageous. You don't call your dentist Uncle Alan, <laughs> <laughs> even if his name is Alan. And um, so I developed friendships, and what I miss most now is these relationships with with people. I met, I had a drink last night with with an old client of mine, a pretty uh, storied attorney. He just won a major case after like 20 years of fighting the system. And he's a, he's a lovely guy. He asked me, what do I miss? And I miss him. I miss the relationships. I miss the, the um, intenseness that I have with my patients. Do I miss doing a crown? Eh. <laughs> Do I miss doing a filling? Eh. I miss the relationships. Which is an interesting, you know, we talk about history. We talk about what we've learned. We talk about our experiences. And it's all unique to an individual, what we can reflect on, what we can pull. And it sounds like, you know, the dullness of work. I think back to corporate and the dullness of going over financial spreadsheets and the dullness of doing, you know, X initiative for this company, marketing plan, whatever, PR plan, investor plan. But it's the people you work with that you remember and, and you generally miss. And when you always ask someone why you're leaving, what are you going to miss? And people always just say the people. The people. And is that what got you into coaching? Well, I, I became very close to my staff. They were an intimate part of my life. So... Um, Leaving them was, was sad. Yeah. Leaving them was sad. There's no, uh, and they, you know, they understood that. Uh, not that they weren't pissed off at me for leaving. That's the way it goes. Always. Uh, that's the way it goes. Now, you came back from Vietnam. You say you came back radicalized. It changed the type of person that you were. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Because I imagine that would affect your relationships quite a bit. <laughs> quite a bit. <laughs> Could you make more of an understatement? <laughs> <laughs> My poor mother. Uh, she, she wanted to, to, for me to be a professional, not a professional communist organizer. She, did, she didn't bargain for that. My first wife didn't bargain for that. Truth be known, I didn't bargain for that. 
life moved me along the way life does. You like to think with chutzpah that you, you have control over that, but that's bullshit. That's yeah. just not so. Life takes you. You know, so one of the questions sometimes I ask my, my clients now is what do you think life, I mean, everybody writes purpose statements and, you know, goals and this. And then I said, what do you think life has in store for you? How do you understand that? And that's the, that's the heavy question. And people have trouble with that because what do you mean? I have, I have, I want to meet this goal, this goal, this goal, this goal. No. What do you think life has in store for you? And that's a good, uh, and, and we've talked about this, is what is it specific to you? And that's what makes coaching so difficult for people because or uncomfortable for people. And I've heard you describe yourself, you know, what are you as a coach or a mirror to reflect back on people, what they, what they present to everyone else. But making it specific to you can be pretty eye-opening and extremely uncomfortable for people. For sure. For sure. I mean um – People want the mirror to be clear and honest. Eh, not so clear. Not never, so, not never works quite that way. Not quite so honest. I mean, it's uh, it's tricky. It's really tricky. I'm I'm uh, thrilled with with being a a truth teller to mm-hmm. folks. Some are cool with that, and some are not. You think most people are just lying to themselves before they? No, I, I don't think people are lying. I think they don't appreciate how they are in the world. And the key is in the world. I mean, you know, we, we, you and I, in conversations, we've talked about the importance of language. Yeah. Language. I mean, everybody speaks language. We think we speak language. And one of the th- eye-openers for me, James Flaherty is a, a linguist, a lingu- language guy. He's very, very sensitive to the implications of language. And one of the things that I learned from him is the distinction between why, when you ask somebody why they did something, or how come they did something. There's a world of difference between those two things. Why just elicits a defensive response Mm -hmm. automatically. Mm -hmm. How come invites folks to contemplate what they're doing. You know, I, I suspect in, in this world that we're living in, this conflict, very, very uh, partisan world, if we asked more folks how come, we would be much, much better off. You know what's funny is uh, just this weekend we saw Friends of the Family, and uh, – they talk a lot about politics and we talk about politics and I generally don't talk about politics on the show simply because people ask it in that way and they get defensive and the conversation either becomes very agitated or it becomes an echo chamber of just people being angry, saying the exact same thing back and forth because most people don't say how come. And just this weekend, someone said, well, how can you have a conversation without politics? Cause politics is in everything. I said, I know exactly one person who said that exact same thing to me, uh, on politics. Um, but it's also not just on politics. It's your conversation with yourself. When We are our worst critic oftentimes. And I feel like it's because our inner dialogue, our inner narrative always starts with why the hell did you do that? And how many times do people have to adjust? It's almost like a political conversation with yourself. How do you turn that into a learning conversation versus the judgmental statement that comes out? 
I'm having this wonderful dialogue with a client of mine who's a um, has trouble getting out of his own way. Folks often do. Uh, I finally convinced him that he was successful at being a failure. So he looked at me like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, that's the place that you really shine. You're at, you're at the rest, at the ready to beat yourself up. And most of us are in that place. We can take out the whip in a second, you know. So, you know, working with, with my friend and, you know, I said, no, that, that's a place where you're really good. Let's build on that. Crazy. I mean, it's like I, I came home and I'm shaking. What did I say? <laughs> where the hell did that even come from? <laughs> but you know what? It's being successful at being a failure is also technically a matter of perspective, right? Because everybody says in order to learn, you have to fail. So it's actually a good thing to be successful at failure. It means at least you're making the effort. If you never fail anything, you're not. And you're good at it. And you're good at it. And you're right? good at you it. You can fail spectacularly, <laughs> which I'm, I'm very, very good to, very successful at doing that as well, failing spectacularly. Yeah, who, who isn't? I mean, if, if you're not failing, what's the, what's the language? You're not trying hard enough. If you haven't failed big enough, you haven't set your goals high enough. One of those uh, I had heard once adding, you know, I can't do that. The statement, I can't do that. If you add the word yet to it, it changes the entire conversation, mm -hmm. right? It makes it a possibility rather than something you're never going to try. Right. And I love the idea of like, what else besides why versus how come or yet can we just change in terms of I, just giving thought to the words that we're using? That's tough. That's tough. Really, you know, being, you know, one of the, the things that I'm told that we're different from other animals is we have the capacity to be self-reflective. We can look at and ask why we're looking at something. You know, and once we ask that, the world can change. So people thought human beings, you know, because of our opposable thumbs, were really special. No. I mean, that's one feature of it for sure. But the real specialness is asking, my, asking yourself or ourselves, why are you doing that? What, what, what's in it? And, uh, you know, part of my political history is trying to understand what was behind all of the, the stuff that goes on. And that's why when folks say they don't talk about religion or they don't talk about um, sex or they don't talk about politics, I believe that the reason that we don't do that is that we're really uncomfortable with the emotional stuff that comes out. And from my way of thinking, it's the emotional stuff that has the real juice. Yeah. That's, yeah. Now, now we're getting somewhere. I want to see what really gets you going. Then we can have a conversation. Until we do that, we're sort of on the surface. And I feel like when you're talking about a belief system, and that's really what politics is. It's what religion is. It's your spirituality is a belief system. It's, you know, I have this opinion and this is what I believe. I feel like a lot of people tend to get emotional because if someone disagrees with you, it's a reflection of them disagreeing with you, right? Something is wrong with you, but we're unable to separate it. But then it's also, if you don't have a proper answer, you haven't fully thought it through, you don't know something. 
And what I like to tell people, when you figure out your belief system, or at least have that inner dialogue, that's when you're able to have a comfortable conversation with somebody else on politics or religion, because you are comfortable in what you believe, because you understand another perspective. You can't have a belief system without seeing all of the other perspectives. Otherwise, you're just reciting what you've been told. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, we, you know, the big best measure of folks' belief system is what do their folks believe? What do their parents believe? That really, you know. And, you know, the old adage is you, you criticize the, the, the fact that they're saying something, not the person. Mm-hmm. So it's really, you know, these, these conversations with folks, they, I mean, I had a, I had a patient, I don't have him anymore, who is a right-wing columnist. The stuff that comes out of his mouth is absolutely pure shit. I, <laughs> and he, he knows it. Actually, his wife, who's a serious educator, believes that he just does this for, because it's a paying gig. Yeah. And that's neither here nor there. So when he comes into the office, he loves to tell me stuff that he knows is incendiary. He loves it. And I said, so why are you doing that? I said, idiot. I'm the one with the sharp instruments. <laughs> I'm have, about to operate in your mouth. <laughs> you have to be crazy to get me pissed off. He said, no, no, it's so much fun to see smoke coming out of your ears. <laughs> so we do stuff for different reasons. Yeah, know? and we have our fun. And we have our fun. So how um, your experience has changed your belief system. Yeah. And your belief system evolved. So when I think through telling people, you know, you got to figure out your belief system, what are some questions that you think that people could start to ask themselves about what do I really believe? Where do they really begin with something like that? Well, that's a deep dive, first yeah. of all. Appreciate that when you're, you're going there, you're really getting, it's heavy. getting yeah. deep. When we, we write down goals and mission statements and all of that stuff. They're always, it's a superficial activity. Folks don't ask themselves, and I invite people who are listening today and I invite my clients, what do you think your purpose is? Why are you here? You might think superficially that it's to make, I don't know, 10K a month or whatever it is. I said, well, that's, that's one thing. But why are you really here? You know, look at this spiritually. What's, what's that about? What difference do you want to make in the world? And that, that elicits, you know, serious discomfort. Yeah. Very what uncomfortable. You, what do you want to do in the world? Because, I mean, the people, the folks that have trouble now as, as we get older, and I'm older, is you're finished. You're retiring now, and retiring is a, you know, nirvana, and it's also a seriously dirty word because mm-hmm. people don't know what the hell. I mean, learning the ukulele is cool, but it's not going to fill up your retirement time. <laughs> you, a, you know, a lot of hours in the day of ukulele. Ukulele can be really good at <laughs> playing the ukulele. So, uh, you know, what it, what what's going on? What's going on? Why? Without getting into a dogmatic religious belief system, who put you here and why? Why are you here? 
in a, in a conversation recently, someone said, I, you know, the Covey, you know, the Seven Habits book, which is a really seminal book for, for everybody to read. It's kind of simplistic now. It's almost almost 30 years old. He says, go, go to your funeral and look at the people in the audience and see what they are going to say about you. You want somebody from your community. You want somebody from your church or synagogue, somebody from... Um, Anything, I, I, my, the thoughts are eluding me now, but from any part of your business, your family, your children, what, what are they going to say? Are they going to say he's, you know, he's a good person, he's a nice person, he's a putz. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you got to be prepared for Thank the, God he's finally in there. you yeah. got to be prepared for the putz answers also. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. This thing called life is really an interesting activity. It's really when you, when you, I'm in Vietnam and, uh, in, and being interviewed by Ken Burns and I'm, I'm a real hellraiser there. Uh, the army really was unhappy with me. I came about, you know, seven millimeters away from being court-martialed. I collected petitions against the war and, they moved me around four times. So it's really, you know, um, but I was telling my wife last night, these things that I did were unconscious. I just did them because I, I needed to. And then the, the question becomes, what does it mean you needed to? Because it wasn't a conscious thought. I couldn't leave my daughter this world that I was living in without making an attempt at changing it. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. So, uh, you know, people want change for different reasons. Mine was that I had this adorable, you know, two-and-a-half-year-old at home, and I wanted the world for her to be a better place. Do you think you were thrust into a situation where you became unconscious in terms of your actions, right? This is, you know, this is not where I want to be. It's not where the world should be. I have a daughter and you just started operating. Do you need something as intense as that in order to, you know, jolt yourself into a belief system? What about the person who's grinding away for 30 years in a back office of a corporation, hating their life? They've got kids. They got to pay for college. Purpose sounds nice, but it doesn't pay the bills. Mm Mm-hmm. What about those people stuck working 50, 60 hours? How do you start answering the question to say, you know what? My purpose is to uh, make pastries um, for whatever because that's, you know. How do you move something between purpose and what you love? Because we talk about technology changing the way that we work. We talk about everything. And it's really going to affect people's belief systems because you talked about retirement. Number one suicide rate in this country are men who are retired because they have no purpose, right? They're not providing for their families. Um, and we're seeing an increase in women who retire as well because there's you know, more women in the workplace now and, and all that. And so mental health is a big issue. What questions do people need to ask to say, you know what, this is actually kind of serious where I don't have a Vietnam to force my hand into a belief system, but I'm also a miserable human being right now 
working a job that I absolutely hate, providing for kids that have to go pay $60,000 a year for college, which is a ripoff, how can you just rip that Band-Aid? Is there anything that people can think about in terms of that? I was at the doctor's last week, and I'm going to get back to answering the question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, you know, I guess I had an EKG. And, uh, you know, they put tape over you and blah, blah, blah. And she said, do you want to take, take the tape off yourself? I said, no, just rip it off. So to your question, I think folks have to appreciate that they're not victims. They're not victims. The minute you acknowledge that you're not in control of your life, um, you're a victim. I mean, going back to Vietnam, I, I was there during Agent Orange, and I got, you know, stage 4B Hodgkin's twice from that experience. Easy, easy to be a victim, Jim. I mean, really, I, I'm, if nothing else, I'm a legitimate victim. You know, I have Agent Orange. I, I have coronary heart disease. I have all kinds of stuff, a consequence of digoxin, the Agent Orange, that was dumped in huge amounts when I, in the years that I was there. So victim is easy, but it's not satisfying. It doesn't, it doesn't talk to something inside of me. So what do you say to your, your clients, my clients? You know, you have to find, I don't like the word love because eh, I'm not sure I understand that. Right. But certainly folks have to appreciate what's inside. What's, what's in, inside them? In them. Then you have a shot. Until then, you're just, you know, wittingly or unwittingly. That's a famous word being used now yeah. <laughs> in politics. Wittingly or unwillingly, unwittingly a victim. And, you know, I, I like what you said about, you know, we hear it all the time. Just do what you love and everything will work out. And that's bullshit. Bullshit. It's just pure bullshit. But I do like the idea of that inner dialogue of you have to decide. It's, it's enlightened self-interest. What are you doing to make yourself the best possible person you can be so you can figure out everything else and then it will fall into line? When your North Star is found on whichever direction you want to go in, everything seems to align along the path. Then you have a shot. I'm not, that's not suggesting that you're going to be successful. But you have and a it's shot. not even going to be easy. But you have a shot. Yep. Without that... No shot. No shot. Yeah. Have fun being miserable. <laughs> Which is terrible. <laughs> Get over it. Be, be a man. I mean, that's a funny thing to be saying now. Be a man. Yeah. Even if you're a woman, be a man. Now, is this purely on... The curiosity thing is, you know, ask yourself questions. Everywhere I turn, you're told, you know, you should do this. You should do this. Everybody has an opinion on what you're supposed to do, right? Nine times out of ten, it's garbage, right? Mm -hmm. How can people shift their their discussion to, all right, I got to do this. I got to do these ten things before I have breakfast. That's what good leaders do. And then I got to do all this stuff before lunch because that's what a good parent does. And then I got to do all this stuff before dinner. You got to task 75 things to do every day, and that doesn't include your work. How can you change that to, this is something I want to try? And is it okay if you try it and it doesn't work? What about people like that in order to figure, to figure out what, what they want to do? 
Well, that's the, the beauty of this work that you and I do, this coaching work. Because if what you're doing is evoking excellence in others, you're helping people be the best iteration of themselves. You need another person in the room with you. You can't do it yourself. You really need another human being to say, schmuck. <laughs> that's that's gonna that's gonna end badly. <laughs> I see the dumpster fire that you're starting right now. You need to. Well, we we do that with our kids. You know, they're, you know, copycats of us, and we know where we've fallen down. So when we see them on the path, they say, "God, don't, don't." Doesn't matter. Folks are gonna go on the path, but a really good coach. Somebody. I mean, I, I believe the the fundamental aspect of being a, a really valuable coach is being a valuable human being to this other person, a trusting co-pilot, if you will. That's the way I guarantees. I mean, it, just think about this with dentistry. I couldn't begin to fix people's teeth unless they acknowledged that there was a problem. I couldn't touch it. So with a coach, you, you can't begin to coach somebody until they say, you know, I need some help. This is not working. Once that's the opening, you have a shot. Without it. Recognizing that you need to get somewhere and you need a hand. You need a hand. Yeah. You talked a little bit about language and the importance of language when you're asking yourself a question. You also like to talk about your body with your clients in terms of, of how your body sits, your posture, and how it impacts your worldview and how you operate in the world. Talk a little bit about that. Oh, this is such a whole interesting area. I mean, I was listening to a podcast uh, a couple of years ago. A woman was about to go on stage in, in a TED Talk. And a TED Talk is a big deal. It really is like, you know, the epitome of being known in this world that we, we live in. Someone said, you know, you don't smile enough. So anyway, she took that to heart. She didn't know quite what it meant, but she mm -hmm. took it to heart. So she went into the bathroom and put a pencil between her teeth. From then on, she always carried a pencil because guess what? You can't frown. You, you can't have a bad thought when you have a pencil between your teeth and you're smiling. If your posture is proper, you have a shot. A shot. But that's all this life is about, having a shot. And I feel like it's part of, you know, the smiling, good posture is a matter of almost self, not necessarily self-respect, but physically putting your best part out to the world in order to get something else back. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's an article, I don't know, a month ago, maybe in the Times. It was a, an article that was critical of Botox, you know, and all the fillers and everything else. What the article said is that it took away the very nuanced appeal 
people that our bodies are. The very delicate balance between emotions and smiles. It's not surprising that you can go see tea. Everybody who's selling stuff on TV is smiling. Yeah. And we pick up subtle cues. This yeah. is what we do from people. It's it's we see it, we you know, we've got you see just a little tweak in the eyes, you see a little tweak in the mouth, whether it's positive or negative, you're able to pick up that subtle cue from someone. We're very nuanced. Yeah. Human beings. And that's where I mean, not only we're nuanced in in the physical sense, but we're nuanced in the, the language sense. Years ago, this is a, I hope I can convey this story without it might falling flat on my face. Someone came in and I said, you have this and this and this, and I, I need a set of x-rays. I said, I said, I'm not having x-rays. And I knew this person, so I could, and I looked at her or him, I don't remember, and I said, Fuck, you're not. <laughs> Imagine your dentist saying to you, fuck, you're not. Long story short, two minutes later, he says, I'd take the x-rays. Just take the x-rays. <laughs> if my dentist is talking to me like that, I'm getting some x-rays. I guess you're getting whatever the dentist is going to give to you at that point. Because they trust him. Yeah. They trust him. And the language becomes secondary. Yeah. That's pretty funny. That's... It's a great story, actually. Happens to be true. <laughs> and you know what? Sometimes the best stories, uh, I guess that's what makes the best stories, are, are those that, that are true. Uh, I know I've got some, I've got some good ones. Um, Maybe so, you should interview yourself. I should interview myself? Yeah. Uh, God, that would, uh, I'm not even going to go down that, that rabbit hole. That would blow up. <laughs> that would be a mess. Um. When you talk about finding another person, you need that mirror. You need that reflection. Sometimes you can find your spouse. Sometimes you can find a friend. Sometimes you do that. But sometimes you don't want to cross that. Right. Right. You just want to keep some boundaries. What should a person look for when they're looking for a coach? Well, you start the, the, the key to any coaching um, interaction is a relationship. And if you can't have that relationship with somebody, it's not going to work. You're going to get, you know, a technique person. Yeah. Techniques are fine, but they're limited. I mean, we all know how it feels to be techniqued. You know, we go to the airport and they say, you know, without any emotion, the flight's been delayed. Flat affect. Have fun waiting. You want to just climb over the... We'll keep you updated the, as soon as we know more information. You want to go to the counter and choke that person. Mm -hmm. For lying. There's nothing we could do. So you don't want to be techniqued. You want a person you can trust. Well, technique is, is okay, but the minute people get onto it, you're dead. Yeah, you can't get off. There's not real much room. There's not really much room for uh, for the nuance that you're talking about. Trust is dead. Yeah. Yeah. And you're putting a square peg in a round hole, I feel like. What do you mean? You have to follow this particular technique. It may not be the right thing for you. So you're trying to bottle into this formula, whatever it is that you're working on, and it may not be relative to, to what it is that you need to do. Yeah. It, it makes us not a human being. I mean, there's, there are now 
uh, things that are in the market or coming to market soon that prevent people from grinding their teeth. It, you get a shock, very Pavlov hmm. stuff, you know. The, friend of mine in California is working with the company on this. And the, the fact is that once people realize that they're being techniqued, they'll figure out a way to, to go around it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like Jurassic Park. Right. Nature always finds a way. Right. And we'll always find a way. Right. And that's how we do it. Um, this is interesting. Very interesting. Is there anything you would tell people to, uh, to start with? As kind of a, a leaving kind of go ask yourself this question, go sit in a dark room and think about it. Well, consistent with what I've said in, in the past hour, sit up straight, smile, read Covey's book, Seven Habits. It's a it's a primer for this stuff. And find somebody who you think you can trust. And good luck. That's it. That's it. Go read a book and find a partner. And you're set to go. Yeah. Good. Well, Alan, this is uh, this is great. How can people find you? The website is um, alan at coachingpractice.com. Perfect. And it's, you know, the website has a bibliography that's a ton long. I wrote it during my bibliography phase <laughs> <laughs> i didn't know you had a bibliography this is uh that's pretty big yeah yeah a biographical phase of your life is uh I read everything yeah that's good so your book recommendation for everybody seven habits well seven habits if if you're new to this if you're in business the senge book the fifth discipline is a a wealth a wealth of information um these are not easy reads. Yeah. Senge is, you know, have to tear your hair out. But that's what's life. <laughs> right. That's part of taking the journey. That's it. Good. Well, Alan, this has been uh, helpful. And I know that the people listening uh, will get a lot out of this. So this has been uh, marvelous. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your knowledge. And thank you for sharing uh, everything with us. And uh, maybe we'll get some people to give some feedback on, on how they're changing their language and their posture and everything. And, and that would be great. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks, Alan. Thank and you. thank you, everybody. More information on Alan is going to be on the website, bellwetherhub.com. I'll put links to his email and uh, to the website and everything else. And as always, we look forward to seeing you out there. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Now, do something for yourself. Bellwether is much more than just a podcast. Join us at bellwetherhub.com, where you can read riveting articles, view upcoming events, and connect with other interesting people. I look forward to seeing you out there soon.